Hello listeners, this is a note to say that the following episode comes with a content warning. It includes a telling of the myth of Agdistus, a god without a fixed gender who was described as hermaphroditic and later transitioned to being female. Unfortunately, this transition was not voluntary and they were a target for some pretty traumatic violence from the other Greek gods, which could be triggering for listeners who are affected by those issues. Please get in touch if you'd like to share insights on how we've presented or dealt with this story, as they are most definitely welcome. Thank you, and on with the show. Welcome to Lore and Legend, bringing you myths, legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We're telling stories the way that they're meant to be told, in the style of traditional storytelling enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Lore and Legend is called The Gates of Dream, exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth and the gods and the spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream of death and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell and Shawnee Basket. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. If you want to join our story folk in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron, visit our website and click support us for more details. Now, in the last episode of our regular series, you heard the tale of how Odysseus, the aged king of Ithaca, disturbed by a prophecy that his son would kill his father, or that he would kill his son, had decided to banish Telemachus for challenging his authority as king. In this episode, Odysseus descends into an abode of the gods, seeking more knowledge about his fate. From storyteller Rick Scott and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sikilo and Caleb Hennessy, this is episode eight, The God of Monsters. On the inmost shore of Ithaca, there is a cove, which lies between two sharp, thrusting walls of stone. On the secret beach, an olive tree throws its wide boughs across the bay. Mortal men can pass between the beach and the northmost stone, but through the southern slit only beings of immortal light may pass, like flashing rays of the sun. And it was in that very place, on those same sands, where Odysseus himself had first awoken on his return to Ithaca all those years ago, when foreign sailors had lifted him from their boat, still soft and deeply sleeping, and had laid him upon the sand, surrounded by his many treasures of bronze and gold, of cauldrons and shields and tripods, and then they had left him and sailed away. When he awoke, he had leapt to his feet, ready for any new danger. 
that although it was the land of his birth to him in that moment it had all looked strange. The harbour, the cliff, the copses of trees, they all looked unearthly and wild. His nerves were tingling and he had asked himself what new strange land was this, what new nightmare had he awoken to. And it wasn't until he met Athena, who came to him under the guise of a shepherd boy, with a pleated cloak slung about her shoulders and sandals on her feet, that the goddess had dispelled the mist before his eyes. And he'd been able to see that he had his heart's desire, that at long last he truly was home. And in that same cove, there was a holy place, sacred to the gods. A yawning cave of dusk and twilight, the walls of which hid from mortal eyes a host of immortal naiads. Nymphs of the rivers and streams that flow from the high crags of Ithaca to the salted sea. In that place, the nymphs gather water from clear-flowing springs and rose petals, which they press to infuse it. Wine they press as well from grapes in great bowls that they have hollowed out from the stones. And they gathered the sweet-tasting nectar which the honeybees brought them. They crushed the bodies of the murex, the sea snail, to squeeze out rich purple dye. And on great looms, stretched between the watery rocks, the nymphs wove beautiful tissues and cloths which shimmered in all the colours of the sea and the water-filled deeps. And all of these things, these raiments and pennants and sweet-tasting foods, they prepared them all for the return of their master. He who, rising from the farthest and deepest depths of the wine-black ocean, takes his seat in the deepest lying chamber. He who is made from the seed of the sea and the womb of the earth, in the first groans of the world's birth. He who wived Keto, and whose foaming loins seeded forth the whole race of the Katae, the monstrous children. The furious, grim-eyed and snake-haired Gorgons, the grey sisters of the sea, who take on the form of swans and who share a single tooth and an eye between them. The Hesperian dragon, the awful hundred-headed snake who guards the apples of gold in the secret places of the dark earth's bounds. And then there was flesh-eating, speckle-skinned echidna half-beautiful woman, half-ravenous serpent, and brood queen of a whole other race of monsters. He who is there at the beginning, with Nereus and Proteus and the other old men of the sea, who touched the ocean's greatest depths before Poseidon was even conceived, and before he was granted the rule of all seas. A shapeshifter, a truth-teller, the god of monsters, the one whose name was Forcus.
and to the bay of Phorcus, and to his cave, by the side of the swell of the crashing sea, came the aged king, Odysseus. And he was dressed in his kingly warrior's armor, carrying his spear, picking a path through the sheltering rocks to the cave's secluded entrance. There, two naiads, in the shape of a fisherman and a washerwoman, sitting and weaving baskets, watched over the place to waylay mortals. But Odysseus had only to show the silver pin of his mulberry cloak, and the nymph maid led him within. Odysseus descended into the cavern. Between walls which rose as slick and black as the throat of a great ocean whale. And lying there in the furthest depths of the place, the briny water shuddering around his great body, lay the god of the deep, the father of monsters, Phorcus. His large bulk filled the cave. Above the waist he was all broad shoulders and seal-brown skin, with sebaceous grey locks that tumbled to his chest. But all below he was chitinous, an organism of black shell and white fleshy valves, bent back on mighty great foreclaws upon a forked tail. And at that very moment he was crouched on the back of another sea creature, a trigon, a slick-skinned stingray of great size and span, which usually dwelt on the floors of the ocean deeps. It was possessed of a flanged and venomous tail, and the trigon it was stretched between Forcus's great claws, both of them squeezing and digging into the creature's flesh before and behind. In the dark, Phorcus perceived the approach of the aged king, and his deep laughter echoed from the silver walls of the cave. So it is Odysseus, famed master of land and seaways, who approaches me here in my home. Tell me, man of suffering, why do you seek out me, an old man of the sea? Odysseus said, I seek your wisdom, ancient one. For I well know how the gift of prophecy came first from those who dwell in the deep. Euphemus, the Argonaut, received from your brother Triton a lump of earthen clay. And later, as he held that lump of clay to his chest, he slept and he dreamed that he was suckling it with streams of white milk. And that clod, small as it was, it turned into a woman of virginal appearance. And possessed with a passion for her, Euphemus lay with her. And when they rose, he felt remorse, for she had been a virgin and she had come from a clump of clay which he had mothered himself. And yet, she consoled him, and said in a gentle voice, I am of Triton's stuff, and the nurse of your children. 
no mortal maid, but a daughter of Triton and Libya. Give me a home with Nereus' daughters in the sea near Anaphi, and I will reappear in the light of day and time to welcome your children and all of your descendants. Euphemus committed his dream to memory and he told it to Jason, the leader of the Argonauts, who told him, you are marked out for great renown because when you have thrown this clod of earth into the sea, the gods will make an island of it and there your children's children will live. And so it came to be. Euphemus threw the clod of earth into the depths of the sea near Anapfi and there grew up from it an island called Caliste. And that island, it was the sacred nurse of all of Euphemus's children and his descendants. And so it is with those like you, Holy Forcus, who were there at the start, when the song of the world was being sung, when Mother Earth and Mother Night spilled their wounds and their broken waters spilled out into the yawning abyss. Forcus, hearing these words, merely nodded his head, and the creaking of his armoured plate and the groans of the trigon beneath him resounded deeply in the hollow places of the Taking his silence as assent, Odysseus continued. I would know if I must fear death at the hands of my son, or if he should fear his death from my own. We are warned that dreams are deceitful. Surely then this spirit of dream came to deceive me. The god did not answer him, not at first. Instead, he raised his head, and stretching out a hand, he pointed through the mouth of the cave, toward the two great plinths of stone which were visible outside, thrusting up from the headlands to tower over each side of the cove. From the shelter of this cave, I observed the day you returned to Ithaca, Odysseus. I saw the Phaeacians lie you between the roots of that great oak, and leave you then still under the drift of sleep. And then I watched as Father Zeus and his brother, earth-shaking Poseidon, descended in a flash from the heavens and stood upon those pillars, casting their shadows across the waters. And between the crashes of wind and thunder and lightning, which bespoke each god's will and his fury, they faced each other across the bay, and they contended over your fate. Father of gods, how can we show our faces before our brothers and our sisters in Olympus if you will suffer a mortal man like Odysseus to so boldly spit in my own face? My revenge on him has been too short. These Viacians have rescued him out of my hands, delivered him home shod from head to foot in gold with enough riches to replace all the plunder of Troy which I have torn from him and swallowed into the depths. 
He is covered in glory once again. Is this the reward for my hatred? Is this the revenge that I was promised? And almighty Zeus, god of storm and thunder, answered him. Brother, curb your rage. For by the measure of Odysseus's fate have I set the limits of your wrath. No further may it go. And yet, if your rage still burns, then why not focus it on some other object? Are you restrained from revenging yourself on any other mortal who has dared to defy you? Weren't these Phaeacians supposed to revere and worship you? And yet they have aided and fostered your most hated enemy? Yes. Yes, cried Poseidon. Give them to me. I'll tear their ship in two, and I'll throw a ring of mountains into the sea before their city. Cut them forever off from the sea and all of its treasures, all of its blessings which are due to me. Zeus answers, Brother, I give them to you. But before you settle on throwing mountains, think about the kind of lesson that you can teach these wretched mortals. Let the offenders sail within sight of their city. And then, in the gaze of their families, their people and their king, turn their sleek ship to dark shame, their proud hearts to stone. Then, the Phaeacians will quake with fearful awe, and they will throw themselves on your worship and your mercy once again. And so it was. As your friends, the Phaeacian sailors, came in sight of their own safe harbour, earth-shaking Poseidon raised his trident in his fist, and he struck the ocean floor. And on an instant, at a rumble of the earth, that swift sailing ship and all its crew were turned into stone. Their petrified bodies rooted to the sea floor, moored there forevermore as a warning against angering Poseidon. Thorcas lowered his eyes from the cove towards the trigon which struggled beneath him. So it appeared that fate had spoken, and you, Odysseus, took your oar in land, and you burned offerings and penance to Poseidon. And you turned away from the ocean, and tried to forget your voyages and your sufferings. And yet, here you are, talking to an old man of the sea, sheltering here from the storms of the ocean. The seas are fickle, are they not? And they are always changing. Phorcus pressed his pincers into the trigon's flesh, and the fish squealed and strained. But its long spine was pulled tight in the god's pincers. Phorcus ignored its cry. You have received the dream, and you have had its interpretation from the lips of skilled men. Knowing what they have said, the god smiled darkly at Odysseus through his salt-stained locks. What is it that you know you should do? I should kill him, Odysseus said, without hesitation. 
and Forcus laughed. Yes, he said. A wise man would. Odysseus gestured towards the creature that writhed in Forcus's vice-like claws. Is this the advice of a natural father, or one who delights in killing his children? But Forcus merely laughed again. It is the natural way sometimes for parents to eat their children. So did Cronus swallow down Zeus and all his brothers and sisters. So did Medea splash the altar with the blood of Jason's sins. But who is a man to speak to me of what is and what is not natural? Here, I will tell you a story about the gods who made you, Odysseus. Then say, if you could call me unnatural. One night, Zeus, the heavenly father, was restrained by the watchful eye of Hera from visiting any of his lovers. So instead, he had a passionate dream, and he expelled his seed, which fell down from the heavens onto a rock of the earth. And in time, that seed sank down into her womb, and Mother Earth grew big with child, until at last, she gave birth to a divine being whom she called Agdistus. But Agdistus was not like the other gods and nymphs, for their body was of another nature. Agdistus was double-sexed. They had the parts and the members of a man and a woman. How did Zeus and his Olympians respond? With fear which they cloaked in outrage, for they were scared of Agdistus's body. They called them a natural, demanded they choose the life and the form of a man or a woman. They were afraid that Agdistus's nature encompassing both would be stronger than any of them, that their body was so powerful that they would conquer the world. But Agdistus refused. They enjoyed their nature and their being, and the use of both male and female parts. And so the Olympians said that Agdistus's nature was lustful, greedy, dangerous, that enjoying both men and women, they would destroy everything sacred and natural. And so as Agdistus slept, Zeus commanded his son Dionysus to castrate them. Reluctantly, Dionysus tied a strong but short length of rope between Agdistus's penis and their foot, so that when Agdistus woke and stood suddenly, their raw strength tore the genitalia from their body, and the blood and the tears of Agdistus rained down upon the earth. And where the blood and the severed member fell and came to rest, they were buried. And from that place grew up the trunk of the almond tree. The river nymph Nama discovered the tree and picked some of the almonds, placed them in her bosom. But when she got home, she discovered that they had vanished and not long after she became pregnant with a boy called Attis, who grew up to be beautiful and handsome. After Agdistus was castrated, 
they took the name of Kaibalu and became a goddess of wild nature. The child Attis became devoted to Kaibalu and the goddess, when he came of age, asked him to guard her temple and to keep his chastity, which he vowed to her. But Attis fell for the seductions of Sagaritus, a river nymph. Kaibali was jealous, and she destroyed the tree which sustained that naiad's life, so that Sagaritus died in her lover's arms on their wedding day. And driven mad with his grief and with his own guilt, Attis fled up to the peak of Mount Didymus, consumed by the waking dreams of the Furies. There, taking a sharp stone, he scourged his own body, and he trailed his hair in the dust, crying as he tortured himself that he had deserved his torment. And he shouted to himself again and again, perish the parts that were my ruin. And with the stone, he cut off his manhood. Now some say that he died there, that he was wholly transformed into the pine tree, holy to Kaibali. Others say that it was only his penis cut off and given as an offering to Kaibali that was thus transformed, and that having made his body womanish, Attis donned a white robe, and from that day forward was devoted entirely and only to his mother, driving the chariot of the goddess behind the team of her rampant lions. Regardless, since that day the priests of Kaibali have all been required to castrate themselves. So I ask the Odysseus, is this what Zeus and his family call nature? That they must destroy and mutilate and castrate to fit something into their own shape? What wisdom, what nurture, what supreme self-love, which hates the shape of anything unlike one's own And as he said this, Phorcus was still crouching on the trigon's back. And he reached behind him, and he drew forth a vicious and barbed spear. But the god was only just warming to his feet. When Athena cursed Medusa for the crime of being raped, and then sent Perseus to slay her, which one was truly woman, and which one was monster? They call the children that I give birth to monsters. But where does ill nature lie? Is it in the or is it in the heart? Then with his powerful arms, the sea god reared up and he drove his barbed spear into the trigon's back. The point tore the slippery skin from nose to tail and the fat and the flesh in bubbles out. And while the trigon jerked and twitched beneath the spear, he continued. You men are just like the Olympians. That's why you love and hate each other so passionately. I knew once a fisherman called Glaucus. He discovered a magic herb which brought his own fish back to life. He tried the herb himself, and he was transformed into one of us, an immortal triton. 
a merman with scales and flippers and a forked tail. And he was adopted quickly by our parents because they didn't care about his origins, just his nature, which they thought now was like our own. But I tell you, Glaucus was vain, arrogant, insufferable. He set his sights upon one of the most beautiful of the nymphs, who was called Scylla. Of course, being a younger kind of god, Scylla despised Glaucus for his monstrous and seaborne shape. Desperate, Glaucus turned to that famous witch and sorceress, Kirky, to brew a potion that would make Scylla fall in love with him. But the fool didn't see or did not care that someone far more powerful and worthy had fallen for him, the witch herself. Kirky declared her love, tried to win his heart, but he told her that there would be trees growing on the bottom of the sea and seaweed on the highest mountain before he ever forgot his love for Scylla. And so consumed with her pain and her jealousy, Kirky made not a love filter, but instead a vigorous poison, which she dropped into the secluded pool where the beautiful nymph bathed and changed her into a mass of writhing snakes below the waist. Sometimes I have been called Scylla's father, and you see, to make that poison, Kirke needed blood of mine, the blood of one who has fathered monsters, and I tell you, I was happy to offer it up. I considered it a favour that she had done me, for though our parents had accepted him, I hated Glaucus for his vanity, which was not the way of the sea. By now the Trigon had expired, and it flopped down dead, with the sea god's spear sticking out of its back. And while he continued to speak, Phorcus began to slice out the vicious barb of the stingray's poison tail with quick and sure movements of a blade. Afterwards, he said, Kirke fled to the Isle of Aeon, where you later discovered her, Odysseus. And there she practiced and perfected the arts of transmutation, of illusion and necklace. On a great loom in her house, she wove and rewove the patterns of nature according to her own desires. Visiting her once on the beach of her isle, I saw that she was surrounded by a strange menagerie. First, there were beasts of the island which she had made tame. The great tigers, which are her constant companions, yet as tame and as agreeable as kittens. And then there were the men who had profaned her island or rejected her love, whom she had transformed into beasts with the aid of her magical wand and bowl. Some had the bodies of men, but the heads of beasts. Others she had turned into animals whole. Not all were men or familiar beasts, but there were also many strange assemblages of parts and limbs, 
which were either her own creations or else dredged up from some primeval heap. And standing amidst those creatures, Kirke seemed like some beautiful herdswoman, and any who sailed by that island would find their ears assailed by the roars of lions that refused the chain, the grunts of bristled boars, the groans of bears, and the howls of packs of wolves that would stun the ears of any sailor. Yet I protested to the witch, would it not be fitting to restore some of these men that she'd changed so that they might learn something from their bondage? But the divine sorceress had only smiled and said, you might call that charity, dear Forcus, but I suspect they would not thank you for such a deliverance, but instead they would pelt you with curses. And I was astonished. With curses, I cried. What curse could it be to be transformed out of so wretched a state? And she said, here, question them yourself. If you can convince even one of them to turn back into a man, I promise I will release them all. Here is one who is transformed from man to pig. You may call him Grillus, the grunter, if you like. And the swine looked at me, and he opened his mouth. Hello, Focus, said Grillus, the swine. And, hello, Grillus, by the gods, said I. And what do you wish to ask me? said the pig. And I explained. I have asked Kirky to remove the spell from any Greek who wishes to resume his original shape and return home to his people. But the stout creature's eyes grew round, and he gave out a squeal, and said, No, no, great focus, say not a word more of that. And I listened with astonishment to the creature's argument, which ran like this, that it is no curse to be an animal rather than a human. In fact, you might well argue that it's better to be a beast than a man. For in truth, Beasts, not only do they possess all the gifts which God and men claim to prize, but beasts excel in those gifts. Indeed, to, to them they are natural. And is it not true that wild nature is more bountiful than any design of a man, just like a forest or a jungle is always richer than a garden, however well it is planted and tended? And Grillus asked me to consider. If you should value bravery, then who is braver? Is it the man who needs letters of conscription, laws against desertion, songs and bugles to lift his spirits and armor to cover his flesh before he will fight? Or is it the lioness who rushes forward naked without thinking to strike and to bring home food for her children? If you should value wisdom, then who is truly more wise? Is it men who envy for their gold and fine clothes? Or the pig, perfectly happy with plain mud and dirt and stones? If you should value loyalty, then who is more loyal? 
They say Penelope waited many years at home for her husband, but don't you know that the crow, if her mate dies, remains chaste for nine whole generations of men? Perhaps you value clear thought. Well then, who is more clear-sighted? Is it men who won't eat simple food unless it's dusted and doused in spices? Or sleep with their own wives unless they come to bed reeking with perfume? Or is it the cow who is happy to eat his plain grass, who makes love without self-consciousness entirely unadorned? Ah, then you may say, what about skill and cleverness? Who is more clever? Is it men who must spend their whole lifetime learning just to do one thing well? Become a physician, a lawyer, a soldier, a politician? Or is it the dog who by instinct knows how to track and to hunt? The nightingale who teaches all of her young to sing? The horse who can outlast and outstretch any athlete on the field? And at the conclusion of all of this, Grillus the Grunter said, If being a beast is worse than a man, then why is it that you call supposedly great men wolf-minded or lion-hearted? My life now is free of all empty illusions that men have. I have no eyes for gold or silver. I can pass them by just like a common stone. A life, I now swear, has no sweeter pleasure than bathing in the deepest and the softest mud. And so it was. I questioned more of the animals. A snake who had been a physician. A hare who had been a nobleman. A goat who had been a Corinthian. A lion who had been a sailor. A dog who had been a scholar an elephant who had been a philosopher, a mole who had been a plowman, and even an oyster who had once been a fisherman, and I tell you, every last one had reason for preferring their present form to their old. So you see, Odysseus, in nature you can find many forms, and it is ignorance to call one form blessed or cursed, one thing beautiful or monstrous. But it is only a lack of vision, the inability to dream of things below or above one's own horizon that makes it so. And all of us, every one of us, preys upon the other in our time and in our turn, parent and child, brother and sister, lover and friend. There is no bond so holy that it cannot be undone by the demands of nature. None may hold himself above the other. This is the way of the world. It is how the fates have made it. Phorcus was cleaning the stingray spine now, trimming away the rinds of blood and flesh, polishing the spines to a wet gleam. He laid it to the side upon a carefully prepared strip of seal skin, and then he turned back to meet Odysseus's eyes. You came here with a question, and this is the only answer that I will give you. In the language of the deep, 
in the song of whales, in the speech of seals and dolphins, in those that preserve the oldest seals. Since the start of time, I have heard your name sung in the dark of the waters. Yours is a hated name, and a loved one. Whether more loved or hated, I know not. But the songs all say the same thing. Death will come for you, Odysseus, out of the sea. No more and no less can I The sky was grown darker still when Odysseus emerged from Phorcus's lair. And with the sea god's words echoing in his ears, Odysseus made his way down the stone skirts of the harbour, picking out his path with the shaft of his spear. And he paused upon a stony crack, on the place called Raven's Rock. In that place, he had stood once before, but had looked inland to his longed-for home and planned with Athena how he was going to seize it back from the islanders who occupied his hall, who besieged his wife and his child. Now he gazed in the other direction, over the bay, across the sea to the horizon, at the dark and storm-tossed waves that hid their depths and multitudes from his sight. The abyss of water that lay between men and Olympus, and the depths of Erebus, Hades, and Tartarus. It was as if he could feel himself being watched, watched by the eyes of all the shades that were tethered to the island and to him. The shades of the suitors hanging in the mournful wind the ghosts of their families, standing in the furrows of the fields, the spirits of the handmaidens, watching from under the boughs of the olive trees, the, the trees which he had hung them in. Odysseus's hands tightened the shaft of his spear. If death was reaching for him from the sea, then he would draw away from it. He would send Telemachus away, across the sea. If his son could not reach him, then the dream could not come to pass. He himself, he would go into the mountains, where the air was clear and breathed by the gods. He would go and he would make sacrifices. He would seek the Olympians. He would seek Athena. He hurried down the shore, lashed by the howling wind, the rain and the storm, and he came to the place on the beach where his own son waited for him, bound fast in iron bonds, there with all of the men who were loyal to him, who would go away with him into exile. And there with stony countenance he met the storm-black eyes of Telemachus, Telemachus was placed aboard the skiff, and the sails unfurled, and the oars plied the waves. Odysseus 
watched as it went. Standing on the strewn grey sands of the cove, he watched for a long time, until the ship had crossed the waters to the other isles, and he watched for a long time after that, until at last he did break away. And then, there and then, the king wrapped his riding cloak around his shoulders, and he chose from amongst his companions a band of those men who were most loyal, whom he most trusted. And he announced that he was leaving for the mountains of Ithaca, for places hidden and obscure, where no enemy or ally of his son should ever be able to reach him unseen or unopposed. And there he would seek the grey-eyed goddess. There he would seek Athena. The god of monsters draws on a number of different myths and elements of Greek mythology. The sea god Phorcus and his progeny, a cult site devoted to him on Odysseus's island home of Ithaca. The myth of Agdistus and its links to the cult of the fertility goddess Kybele, and the story of the fisherman Glaucus, the sorceress Kirke, and the nymph Scylla, who was turned into a sea monster as well as comedic tales about the men whom Kirke turned into animals and beasts on her island home of Aea. Phorcus has been described as the ancient sea god of the hidden dangers of the deep. He was married to Keto, whose name meant whale or sea monster. And together they were the parents of many important monsters in Greek mythology. These included the three snake-haired gorgons, the monster Scylla, the sea hags known as the Grey Ones, a serpent with a hundred heads called the Hesperian Dragon, and Echidna, a goddess of sea scum and sea slime who was half woman and half dragon, who herself gave birth to famous monsters like the Chimera, Kerberos, the Hydra, and the Sphinx. Phorcus was named as the father of the monster Scylla, but later, the story that she was a beautiful nymph cursed by the enchantress Kirke became more widely known. Phorcus was often depicted in ancient art as having a fish's tail, a crab-like shell, and a crab's foreclaws. There were many similarities between Phorcus and other sea gods like Nereus and Proteus, the Tritons, other sea deities who resembled or had the traits of what we would call mermen today. Often these other mermen were depicted with tridents and seashells, but Phorcus usually carried a torch. The story of Agdistus and Attis was apparently a Greek translation of a myth about an ancient Phrygian goddess. It was centred on Pessinus, a city in Anatolia in modern-day Turkey which lay on the upper Sicaria River, whom the river nymph Sagaris personified in the story. Uniquely, Agdistus is described as having been conceived as the result of a nocturnal emission from Zeus, a wet dream, 
So there you go, never doubt our commitment to covering every kind of dream in Greek mythology in this series. Although in some more troubling versions, the god is said to have deliberately masturbated over Agdistus's sleeping mother, who is sometimes identified as Gaia or Mother Earth, sometimes as Rhea, and sometimes confusingly as Kybele, the god which Agdistus was later equated with or said to have turned into. As a divine being, Agdistus was double-sexed, having the parts of both men and women, and this created fear amongst the gods. By castrating the god, they created the fertility goddess Kybele, who became the mother of a man called Attis by a miraculous conception. Agdistus is sometimes described as a god of pleasure because they were able to use both male and female sex organs. Agdistus has been described as a hermaphroditic deity, one of relatively few such characters in Greek myth, alongside the nymph Hermaphroditus, and they hold particular interest and importance today for the potentially fluid aspect of their sex, sexuality and gender characteristics. Unfortunately, the violence of this myth directly mirrors and represents patterns of rhetoric and violence in response to queer and LGBTQ plus identities in the real world. The gods are said to have actively feared Agdistus's non-binary nature and to stigmatise it as transgressive, deviant and dangerous. A binary sex and gender identity being imposed on Agdistus through a brutal act of mutilation ordered by Zeus in his role as embodiment of the violent and heteronormative order of his patriarchy. The goddess Kybele may well have been distinct from Agdistus at one time, but later the two were identified together and their myths were combined through the story of Agdistus's castration. Kybele was a fertility goddess of the mountains and wild nature and a mistress of animals. The story of her son Attis and his own act of self-castration was foundational for the cult of Kybele, whose priesthood was said to be eunuchs. In many versions of the myth, the relationship between Kybele and her son is actually romantic and incestuous. The Bay of Phorcus and Raven's Rock are both locations described in Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus lands on his return to Ithaca. Now, in the present day, it's unclear whether the mythical island of Ithaca and the present Greek island of Ithiki are in fact the same place. Significantly, Homer's Ithaca is described as being the farthest out to sea, rearing into the western dusk, while the other islands were said to face the east and breaking day. A description which doesn't seem to fit with present-day Afiki, which lies to the east of the other islands in that group. Over the centuries, many scholars have put forward different theories to either reconcile the locations of Homer's Ithaca with present-day Afiki, or to match them with other locations in the Ionian Islands. It's fun to try and match up locations from the myth with real-world locations, it's nice to think that you might be able to follow in the footsteps of Odysseus, but none of these identifications is secure or certain. If you go to the blog post for this episode, you can look at pictures and videos from present-day Afiki, which have been identified with locations from the Odyssey by some scholars, including the possible site of Phorcus's harbour at Dexia Bay, 
and a candidate therefore the caves of the nymphs. Some scholars believe that ancient Ithaca was in fact the present-day island of Kefalonia. And in 2005, the researcher Robert Bittlestone proposed that Peliki, a peninsula in the northwest of Kefalonia, was originally a separate island, that this was ancient Ithaca, a location which would match the description of Ithaca in the Odyssey as lying the farthest out to sea in comparison to the other islands. Bittlestone further identified the Bay of Phorcus with Aphirus Bay in Peliki, a crescent beach enfolded by two jutting headlands and the terraced groves of olive trees. In this episode, Phorcus also becomes the interlocutor for a conversation between humanity and the animal kingdom. Drawing on a tradition of semi-comedic dialogues between humans and animals, which explores philosophical questions about the differences between men and beasts. The original text in this tradition was by the second century philosopher Plutarch, who wrote on philosophy and mathematics as well as working as a magistrate, diplomat and religious priest. His text, Do Animals Reason? imagined a comical conversation originally between Odysseus and one of his sailors whom Kirke had turned into a pig in the Odyssey. The pig was called Gryllus, or Grunter, by Kirke, and so Gryllus became the most common and famous name to refer to the text by. The point of the dialogue was to question or unsettle the assumption that human life is superior to animal life, by suggesting that many of the supposed virtues or good qualities of human beings are arguably more evident and even more purely motivated in the behaviour of animals. And many future writers referred back to and built on the Gryllus, copied and expanded its premise. Forcus's subsequent conversations with different kinds of men and women transformed into animals in this episode is taken from a book written in 1549 by the Italian Giovanni Battista Gelli called The Kirche, which expanded the concept of the original Gryllus into a whole series of dialogues between Odysseus and an expanded cast of transformed characters. Next time on Lore and Legend, Odysseus dwells upon the dark history of a family steeped in blood the house of Atreus, its patriarch Agamemnon, his wife Queen Clytemnestra, and their children Orestes and Electra. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 8, The God of Monsters. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org. Full audio credits are available at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. You could also go there for news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend and 
If you'd like us to keep producing this podcast and you want to keep hearing the best quality sound effects and music, then you really should consider supporting us by donating to us directly through the Ko-Fi service or supporting us on a regular basis through Patreon. You can find all of the relevant links to do that on our website under Support Us. And once again, thank you for your support and for listening to our stories. Speak to you again soon, story folk.